I'm Coach John Cook, and this is the Talking Hoops podcast. We welcome you into uh, th- this current episode, tonight's episode. We are fortunate to be visiting with a guy that I guess I would call a long, long time friend of mine because that's all I've got is long, long time <laughs> anymore. Uh, Scott and I go way back uh, because of the camp scene, but uh, we're going to be visiting today with Scott Cooper, who is the head basketball coach at Indiana University South Bend, an NAIA school uh, in Indiana. And, and Scott has a I guess I use this term a lot on this podcast. He has what I would term as a fairly unique uh, journey through the coaching ranks, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, all his stops along the way and, and uh, what's brought him into the head coaching ranks. And as much as anything else, I just look forward to talking uh, a little bit of basketball. The journey itself is going to be an interesting story, and and, uh, and then I think the, the journey from assistant to head coach is, is, a, is always worth talking about. But I also am interested in talking to Scott a little bit about the differences between NCAA Division III uh, and NAIA and the things that he's experienced uh, during that time. So, uh, Scott, welcome to Talking Hoops with Coach John Cook. How you doing? Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So, let's for some of our listeners are going to know who you are if they're tuning in. Some are going to tune in and don't know you or me. Uh, and I know a little bit about your background, but I've always found it a little bit interesting, Scott, that a guy would would grow up basically in the front yard of maybe one of the most powerful Division three basketball programs in the entire country um, for a long, long time and opt to play elsewhere uh, as a Division three player. So I'd like to start there and then talk about your 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 choo- choosing to go in to coaching. But talk to me a little bit about your high school playing experience and your choice to go away from your hometown, which is Worcester. Yeah, well, you know, you grow up in Worcester, and there are a lot of people actually from Worcester that go to the College of Worcester, so I don't want to make it sound like everybody gets out of town. But, uh, you know, for me, I just I wanted to experience something else, and the College of Worcester was dynamite around that time. It still is. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to – I really was looking for three things. I was looking for a place that I could get a great education. I was looking for a place that I could, you know, hopefully contribute some as a freshman, and I was looking for a place that could compete for, you know, uh, an opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament. And uh, so that kind of led me to mostly Division three schools. I had a couple of opportunities at Division two level where I didn't think I was going to have an opportunity to play right away. So those kind of crossed those off the list. And um, Worcester was kind of in the same boat. I'm not 100% sure for, um, you know, I had a pretty good high school career, but I'm not 100% sure that I could have played for them right away. So, um, and, and again, I wanted to get away. So um, I ended up narrowing it down to your alma mater at Ohio Northern and uh, Allegheny College and, uh, you know, after looking at both situations a little bit, I thought I had a better opportunity at Allegheny, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. So for anybody that might not know, where where is Allegheny located? What league do they play in? And 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 Because I, I think that's interesting, too. <laughs> so Allegheny actually plays in the same conference as uh, the North Coast Athletic Conference, the same conference as the College of Worcester, Whitburg, and a lot of the other big boys. And I, I was fortunate enough to go there uh, during a time when they were probably as good as they've ever been. They were coming off an NCAA tournament bid and uh, uh, beat Baldwin Wallace in the first round of the NCAA tournament my senior year of high school and uh, lost to, um, I believe it was Hope, who was in the Final Four that year and uh, had a very good game. So, um, And they graduated a huge senior class, so I thought, you know, hey, they got a chance to be pretty good again with who they had coming back, and maybe I had a chance to fill in a role there a little bit. And uh, So... Um, I, I went there, but, you know, part of the, uh, the appeal was my father was uh, very ill at the time, and I wanted to be able to play close to home as much as I could. Um, so being in the same league as Worcester, you know, gave me an opportunity to do that as well. And uh, I think, honestly, that was probably the deciding factor for me. But it's located in a small town in northwestern Pennsylvania called Meadville. 
um, about a half an hour south of Erie, about an hour and a half north of uh, Pittsburgh, and it, it's really it's in the middle of nowhere. It's just this little podunk town. Uh, great place. I, I really enjoyed living there, and my, my wife's from there, as a matter of fact. But um, you know, the only thing that's really there, other than the college, is um, the um, Channel Lock Tool Company. I was going to say Meadville, PA is home of the Channel Lock Flyers, that's, right? That's right. Yeah, fiercely made Meadville, PA. That's that's their, their <laughs> claim to fame. Man. I don't know what percentage of our listeners would even be able to identify a channel lock plier, but I know that I can because I grew up on a farm, and I know that you can because you spent four years in Meadville. Yeah, that's thanks to the application group, but uh, you know, truthfully, the only reason I knew about channel lock is you drive, drove by it on the way into town, and they had those they have those commercials during college football every Saturday. So that's uh, <laughs> other than that, I, I couldn't tell you Phillips said from a flathead half the time. I, I could appreciate that. So you, you decided to leave home for the reasons that you, you went through. At what point during your college playing days, or was it after that? When did you when did you know that maybe the college coaching route was going to be the route you wanted to go for a career? Uh, the thought was always kind of in the back of my head, but I actually went there to be a doctor, um, of all things. They had a really good placement in med schools, and uh, um, <laughs> so I go there, and I do terrible in chemistry that very first semester, and uh, my chemistry teacher, you know, I, I joked with her when I came back there to work that she probably did the world's service by uh, not letting me uh, go down that path. But uh, um, I messed up my knee in my junior year of college uh, early in the season there and uh, kind of hung around, didn't really have a whole lot of, you know, to do. And, uh, you know, my season was over. So I tried to stay around the program as much as I could. We really struggled that season. I was the only junior. We didn't have any seniors. And, uh, you know, just to be able to be a part of that, I, I really enjoyed that experience. And then my senior year, I just, you know, my knee injury was severe enough that I still wasn't back ready to play yet. And uh, so my coach threw me the opportunity to stick around and help out. And, you know, when I got healthy enough to play, we, we talk about that too. But um, by that point, I had been out for about a year. So I kind of moved into more of a student coach role than anything. And I uh, really enjoyed what I was doing and uh, had the option to either become an actuary out of college. I, I ended up majoring in math or, um, I had three job offers, which never happened in coaching, but I had three job offers in coaching. One was as a graduate assistant at uh, Alfred University. Uh, one was as a graduate assistant at Gettysburg College, and one was at, uh, as a part-time assistant at Hiram. And, um, you know, when all things came together, the Alfred uh, option ended up being the best one because they covered the most things for me. So I ended up taking that rather than going and making $70,000 out of the school. I took a job that gave me uh, – nine credits a semester and $1,500 for the year and uh, have never looked back. Well, I don't think anybody that's got the coaching bug the way that we have it uh, is going to make a lot of decisions on the surface that sound really smart to too many people. So, but I can, (laughs) (laughs) I can appreciate your choice. Now, Alfred is located where? Alfred is located in the Southern tier in New York. Um, It's not near anything. It's, uh, it's right. sits in the foothills of the Allegheny mountains, probably about, two hours south of Rochester, if you can picture that, right on the Pennsylvania border. But it is, uh, there, there's nothing close to it. It's an odd town. There's about a thousand people in the town, but there are two colleges. There's Alfred University, where I worked, and um, there's a place called Alfred State College, which is a large state school uh, across the street. I mean, literally, there's a stoplight that separates the two, and that's it. It's kind of in these, the town sits in a valley right in between these two schools. Uh, we got Alfred, where I worked on one mountain, and Alfred State on another mountain, and there is nothing else there but a whole bunch of deer. And <laughs> well, the, the years that you were at Alfred, I think that's when you and I met. Is that correct? Uh, I think I was in college. You might have been playing. I started working those camps. Yeah. Yeah. What years were you at Alfred? I was at Alfred from 2002 to 2008. 
Okay, and you gra- you graduated in 2001 from, from Allegheny? By 2002. 2002. So compare with, for me, if you would, your experience both as a player and as a student coach at Allegheny and taking that role that you took at Alfred. The first thing I guess I would ask is in terms of the the style of coaching that you were exposed to at both places, was there a drastic difference or were there a lot of similarities? Oh, huge difference. <laughs> the coach I worked for at Alfred was a guy named Jay Murphy. He was a great coach, really good people person. And, uh, you know, it, it was a tough place to recruit to. Our financial aid wasn't great. It was, you know, location was terrible. Um, we had some good academic programs that were a nice sell um, in engineering and some unique engineering programs that weren't available to many places. But uh, um, he was a very very organized, you know, everything down to the, you know, absolute second in practice. And, you know, I always used to joke with him. He had a pen set on his desk and this is that um, he would notice if they were moved wrong, you know, if they were in the wrong angle and they were sitting the wrong way. So I used to, when I, as I got to know him, I used to mess with him a lot and uh, do that. I won't repeat what he used to say to me when I did that, but, uh, you know, he, he was, it's he a was podcast. You're allowed to. Yeah, well, that's either way. <laughs> my wife might be listening someday, so I'm gonna do my best to keep it classy. But uh, he was—he uh, was very much um, kind of an old school, you know, um, Bobby Knight type, very intense, um, uh, off the floor, on the floor, off the floor. He was—he was a great human being. Just he did do anything. You know, we had a couple of guys that we kicked off the team my first year there. Who uh, he still went out of his way to help them after they graduated and stuff like that. I think that's probably one of the best stories I can tell about him. But. Um, the coach I played for in college and, you know, helped out with, there was a guy named Phil Ness who was, uh, you know, far less organized. You know, he had a very distinct way that he wanted to play, but, um, you know, he, he was always trying new things and doing new things. And sometimes we'd get by on talent. Sometimes um, he would find a way to coach that. But, he you know, he was a fly by the seat of his pants kind of guy. And, uh, you know, that worked for us. Obviously, you know, we had some pretty good teams while I was there too. So I don't want to um, say that one way was better than the other, but uh, he, there was a very, it's definitely different. You know, he, he wasn't as keen with uh, a couple of really good assistants, a guy named Greg Curley, who's now the coach at uh, Juniata College, and a guy named Carl Jelinek, who uh, ended up going on to be the coach at Teal College and later Washington and Jefferson, who was pretty successful there. Um, and, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, you were there to do things his way. There wasn't a whole lot of input coming from him. Whereas when I went to Alfred, you know, the very first day or the very first scrimmage I was there, he's like, All right, who do you think we should put in here? He was asking for my input right away. And I'm, you know, 22 year old coach who has almost no experience whatsoever. So um, just different roles, different ways of doing things. So could you, I guess, would you say that even that early on, you were, you were starting to, to formulate your own philosophy and ideas based on the, the contrasting styles or was there more of a definite what I'm going to do versus what I'm not going to do? Uh, no, I, at Alfred, I, I was very much, uh, I, you know, I always tell people this, like I, I got the more input there than I ever had anywhere else, you know, which is funny because that was the place I was obviously the least experienced, but he, he really challenged me. I, Coach Murphy really challenged me to, you know, think for myself and all right, what would you do in this situation? You know, when I was watching film, he had me doing the scouts right from the get go and, you know, I would turn him over to him and he, he would, you know, tell me what he liked and didn't like from him. And, you know, he'd done that on his own. Um, you know, I, I got a whole lot of input into our offense as we went on, and that really helped me grow as a coach early on. I got a whole lot of input into, you know, player development and things like that. That, uh, you know, I, I ended up getting my CSCS for a while while I was there. I ended up, uh, you know, so I was running all our weightlifting, you know, from the second year I was there. I was running by my third year there. I was running all our offense. I was uh, doing most of our player development. I got to work with our bigs right from the get go and, uh, you know, kind of um, use that almost like an experiment. Like, 
poke and prod and see what worked for me as a coach. And it, it took a while, but I, I probably grew more there as a coach than I did anywhere else. Fair, fair to say while you were at Alfred that it cemented that this was definitely what you wanted to do. There weren't, there were, were there doubts that crept in during that time? Uh, well, I'm, <laughs> there were definitely doubts that crept in during that time, but truthfully, I, uh, um, the thing that really made me see that I could handle this is that Alfred was an odd place and, you know, you kind of always had to serve a lot of different roles. And I was very fortunate. They actually did a lot to keep me around there. I was a grad assistant. That, that was, I was the only assistant there my first year or my first two years. And then, uh, they turned it into a part-time position my third year to keep me around. And then they ended up making it into a full-time position. And part of that was I had working odd jobs around campus. And by the end of it, I ended up being the tennis coach there. Um, the head men's and women's tennis coach. And, uh, you know, I could go on for days about some of those stories, but, uh, you know, that actually probably gave me more confidence as a coach than anything else that I did just because, you know, managing the people side of things with very, very dis- different personalities than what you get in basketball. Uh, I was able to kind of figure those things out. I certainly wasn't very good at it at first, but, uh, you know, we, um, you know, I figured out kind of how I would recruit, and, you know, to myself and how I would sell myself to people in a situation that was obviously tough to do because to this day I couldn't tell you how to hit a backhand. But, um, you know, I, I, I had this thing where I look it up every year because I'm, I'm still kind of proud that I have the best win percentage of any tennis coach in school history there. Uh, <laughs> I had very, very good players. I had nothing to do with the level of coaching there. But, uh, you know, I, I got to manage personalities and schedule and do a lot of the administrative side of things that you maybe don't get to do as an assistant. And, uh, knowing that I could handle that was a great experience for me. Do, do you think the, cause there are a lot of division threes. I don't think it's any secret. There are a lot of division threes that have some coaching jobs that are basically under the other duties as assigned category as a part of, <laughs> as a part of what the actual job is. Um, did your, did your athletes in, in tennis, have an, uh, a realization or an awareness that, you know, we're getting coached by a guy so they can have a basketball assistant? Oh, 100%. <laughs> There's no secret. When I, it's funny because I, I ended up having great relationships with the teams, but I remember one of the women's players was a really talented player. Um, when I when I got the job, she's like, they don't even care about us. You know, I, she, she was complaining to our athletic director before I'd even met her. And uh, so it was uh, – it, it was – there was no secret about it. Football came first there, but men's and women's basketball came second. Anything that came after that was, uh, you know, just lucky to be around, and uh, that's the way to do it. But, yeah, I had to do that. I mean, I had to talk about other duties as assigned. I had to be the assistant sports information director. I was I had to help out with other student groups on campus. I mean, and all those things, it was like, uh, you know, you could tell that they were taking a backseat just to, you know, help the men's basketball program. Uh, I, I appreciate, though, and find it interesting that you said that, that the administrative side of what it took to run the tennis program, if you will, was valuable to you as you look down the road as a coach. Yeah, that I think really probably prepared me more to be a head coach than anything that happened on the basketball court. I, you know, I don't think, in, you know, you were touching on that earlier, the transition from being an assistant, you know, and your assistant, it's not your name on it anymore. And, you know, little things like that when they get screwed up, whether it's scheduling or transportation or, you know, any, any of the things you have to deal with as a head coach, when they get screwed up, you know, it, it ultimately comes back on you. You know, when that stuff happens, when you're the assistant coach, it's not your name on it. And they, you know, you're the only guy who's getting any criticism, if those are your responsibilities as the head coach. So, um, you know, there's just a lot more pressure, I think, that goes into it. And having that experience already, you know, prepared me a little bit to, you know, be ready for those type of things. So you spent your roughly four years uh, at Alfred as the only assistant I guess, and to be fair, I don't know if you guys had volunteers and, and those kind of things, but essentially the only full-time assistant in that program, 
that really was just the beginning of your journey. Would you mind sharing kind of the, the next steps and kind of the path that you followed before you became a head coach? Yeah, well, yeah, I actually ended up being there for six years. And uh, we, my last couple of years, they did grab a grad assistant position, too. So we'd end up having a couple of guys during that time. But, um, yeah, my, the head coach that I worked for, Coach Murphy, uh, our women's coach had resigned uh, to move on to other things. And uh, he had a daughter who was a very good player and uh, who was a freshman at another college in our league, actually, at the time. And um, the opportunity to coach her. So he, he actually decided to move over to the women's program, talk with the athletic director, decided to move over to the women's program and his daughter transferred down to play for him. So um, they interviewed me for the head coaching job and ended up hiring a guy named Dale Wellman, who has, um, went on to be really successful, um, not as much at Alfred, but uh, at Nebraska for Wesleyan where he won a national championship. Um, so they, they brought him in and, you know, I didn't want to stick around or work for another coach after I'd been there for six years. And some of that was ego, but um the assistant job at my alma mater opened up and uh, it was a different coach than who I had played for, a guy named Rob Clune. But we'd gotten to know each other because the Alfred and uh, Allegheny are reasonably close regionally. And we, you know, we played each other a little bit. And I still had a connection to the program. So um, I called him up and went down there and interviewed. And it was one of the strangest interviews of my life. I, you know, I went down there to go through the process to go through when you interview these things. And um, Allegheny had just started really pumping money into the university and well, much more so than when I was there. But, uh, you know, we go through the whole, you know, spiel that you go through during an interview. And then he's like, well, do you want to walk around campus? And I'm like, well, I just graduated six years ago. Can't be there. What do we need to see? And he's like, no, I think you should take a look around. And we go walking around the campus and it was just a completely different school. I mean, they had really upgraded everything there. I, I think of all the places I've worked, no place was better run than was in Allegheny. I mean, they, they were really, it was right around the time of the financial crisis, the housing and everybody's really struggling with budgets. And they were actually increasing enrollment at the time. They were up to about 2,100 students while giving less financial aid than they did when I get there, which is never happens in small college athletics for anybody that's ever worked at that level. Um, so, I mean, it, it was really a need to be a part of that and, uh, you know, be a part of the, you know, growth of that program. They, you know, fallen on some hard times a little bit and uh, just started to get things going a little bit again, right before I got there. And we were pretty fortunate that first year to hit uh, some ups and downs, but, you know, going into the second year, we were able to take it from seventh place in the league back up to third, which was kind of where we were competing at when I was at uh, student athlete there so uh, it was fun to be a part of that and for the people who may not uh, be aware when you talk about competing in the, in the NCAC Worcester's a national power Wittenberg uh, is is essentially or has been a national power fairly consistently <laughs> to, to be third in that league is to essentially be a potential league champion a lot of places am, is, am I correct yeah absolutely I mean we always you know, the way we always kind of talk about Worcester and Wittenberg are the two winningest programs in NCAA Division Three history. And I think Wittenberg still has the best win percentage of any program in college basketball history. I don't know if that's still true or not. They had that one losing season one year, 10 years ago, whatever it was. But, uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, those places have resources and stuff that, uh, you know, a lot of schools at that level and at any level don't have. And, uh, you know, obviously they've done a great job with, you know, what's available to them. But, uh, yeah, I, we always felt like, you know, I think we were second my – freshman year of college um and i think that's the best allegheny had done in the ncac since wittenberg had joined the league they they wanted a bunch from the league form um but that was before wittenberg had joined well so you you spend the years that you're at allegheny talk about the the i guess the the rebuilding of the program i think you said it you kind of had to get it back to that place talk about the experiences that you went through as an assistant the head coach that you worked for and and, and if you don't mind i'd like you to touch a little bit on uh, style of play and, and the things that how it compared to the other parts of your journey prior to being there. 
Yeah, it was uh, the coach that I worked for was a guy named Rob Boone. He was a really good coach. He'd come from, he'd been an assistant at Allegheny um, about the six years prior before I got there. Um, and then he ended up being the head coach at uh, Bethany College down in West Virginia. Um, and done, did a really good job building them up. And they were in the NCAA tournament a couple of times. Um, and then he came back to Meadville. His wife was an Allegheny alumnus as well, and her alumna as well. And, um, you know, she worked in the admissions department. And uh, so we had kind of some good ties through the campus already just because of his relationships to the school before he got there and obviously with his wife uh you know being one of the higher ups in the admissions department that really helped us out um but yeah you know it's it's an interesting place because it's a place that you're not going to recruit locally a whole lot you you get the kids from all over the place we had kids from chicago you know the chicago area new york city area um i mean you name a part of the country we probably had a kid from there at some point or another um, so you had to be a little bit creative in how you recruited. And there were days that I'd be, you know, flying to Orlando one day, Chicago another day, and, you know, so on and so forth, trying to get kids. Um, so, you know, it was a little bit more, the challenges were a little bit greater because financial aid wasn't great. The admission standards were extremely high. And, uh, you know, we had to be creative in how we got kids in order to do that. But uh, uh, Coach Clune, he, he liked to play really fast. He, you know, he's a real, uh, really, really laid back guy, uh, much more so than the coach I was working for. So I went from one extreme to the other. Um, and personalities. They're they both great with people, and uh, you know, he, he was great in the community and stuff like that. It was kind of cool to see him. And you know, um, really, I think one thing that really influenced me with the first two coaches I worked for, both Coach Murphy and Coach Clune, was they were great parents. You know, and I think the especially being a parent now myself, uh, you know, balance being a head coach at a small college level and everything that you do there. Um, you know, and oh, by the way, you also have to have a wife and kid at home. You know, there's a lot of people who don't do that well, and uh, you know, I was very fortunate to see two guys who did, but. Uh, but it turns out we played. We played really fast. Um, we, we got up that last year. We got up. We pressed the entire game. We'd, uh, we started, we'll, we'll call it slinging threes because I think everybody does that now. But, you know, we, we'd shoot 20 threes a game, which at the time seemed like a lot. And, you know, we did eight, things like that. We played with one post player and uh, did a lot of dribble drive stuff, which at the time was reasonably new. And, uh, you know, I think now it's almost a you know, ancient thing. It seems like how quickly the game changes. But it was good for us. And, you know, we had – we're very fortunate to have a really good point guard who played at uh, St. Anthony's High School in New Jersey for uh, legendary Bob Hurley, who was like their 12th man and came in and started for us right away as a freshman. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, we had a we had an unbelievable um, group of post players during the time of there. We had a guy named George Raftis, who was a two-time All-Region, you know, first-team All-Conference guy, and uh, we had uh, uh, actually the son of the coach that I played for ended up being a pretty good player after I left there. Um, we also had, you know, at one point, uh, my first year there, we went, we had six ten, six eight, six seven, six six, six six, and I remember walking in to play Youngstown State one time that year, and their head coach looks over at the assistant coach who scheduled the game, and it's like, what on earth did you get us into? We looked really good getting off the bus, uh, but those guys could play. I mean, they, they were they were good players, and uh, we got a little bit smaller. We figured out it's actually better for us to play smaller, but uh, um, that's I think one of the things I really enjoyed about Coach Clune is he, you know, he he was willing to adapt and. and really got out in front of a lot of things that, uh, you know, were coming in basketball at that time. So how did you, uh, how'd you do with Youngstown State? We, we weren't on the right end of the score. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, they, they were, uh, they, they managed to get by on us, I think. So did we you, buy it, you know, by 30 or so. Did you at least make a little money? Uh, I think we got 3500 for the game. And it was only about an hour trip, so I'm sure we, we came out ahead pretty good. That's That's not yeah. bad at all. Yeah, I got some nice plays for the high. You know, we got a few dunks that looked nice on the highlight film, and uh, you know, <laughs> managed to leave out the score whenever we were showing that to recruits. So <laughs> that's uh, that's savvy. That's what I think. That's what we call that. That's 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 savvy. It was a cre- 
guy. I think they call it creative editing in politics. That was like, yeah. So what what precipitated your your next move away from Allegheny? I mean, it's it's essentially like a second home to you. Things that seem to be going well, working for a guy that you really respect, and and it seems to me from what you've described, learning, uh, continuing to learn more about the game itself. But uh, what, yeah, what, what what precipitated the next move? I, I had no plans of ever leaving there. To be honest with you, I would have stuck around until he stepped down um, and tried to take over as the head coach if I had had it my way. But what ended up happening was, um, you know, a power struggle between our athletic director at the time and um, the coach I was working for. And she, you know, she'd gone through this with some older coaches and, um, you know, who were really good when I was in school. Um, the baseball coach had been pushed out. The women's basketball coach had been pushed out. And they'd both been really successful. Um, and, and then, you know, she kind of came after him and, um, you know, he wasn't going to put up with that. So at the end of the day, you know, she ultimately won that battle. And, um, you know, I was pretty bitter about how that went down and, uh, you know, started looking on for the next thing after that. But, uh, you know, it was, and the irony of all things, she was let go a year after that. So, um, you know, they, they obviously realized what they had when, when all that was going on, I guess. But, um, yeah, so I ended up looking at, you know, unfortunately it happened at a really bad time for an assistant coach. It was in the, you know, in the summer and I was kind of scrambling to find something. And I, if ever there was a time I thought about getting out of coaching, it was right around then just because of how everything went down and you know, it was the place that I wanted to be at. So um, ultimately I kind of calmed down after that, actually after working camps and stuff like that and realized I still enjoyed doing what I do. And um, a job came open at a little college in West Virginia, a division two program called Alderson Broadus. And I was familiar with the head coach there a little bit. And um, the assistant, there was a guy named Nick Biles, who um, he and I have, were finalists for a director of operations job at Miami of Ohio. And he got the job. So I just called his boss up and, hey, I hear you're looking for a guy. And um, he uh, he had been a high school coach, a really successful high school coach at St. Edwards uh, um, in Cleveland. And, um, you know, so I was familiar when I was in high school and you know, when, the, when they really started getting things going there. And uh, so I was familiar with them a little bit. And, you know, I looked into the program and they had been wildly successful. I think they made the NCAA tournament like nine straight years at that level and they never had a season below 20 wins. And uh, so I was like, you know, this is going to be a pretty good opportunity to learn from a different type of coach and be in a good program. And uh, I had no idea what living in West Virginia was going to be like. But, uh, you know, the, the job really didn't pay very well, but it came with uh, free, free room and board. And, uh, you know, I was like, what the heck, I got nothing else. Let's give it a shot. And, you know, ultimately ended up being a great gamble for me because, uh, you know, another place that I learned a lot. When you talk about what you learn, and Alderson brought us, is, you said NCAA Division II, um, it, it, it broadens your, I, I guess, your view of recruiting. You've got, you've got a chance to offer kids money, and, and that, I think, changes things a little bit. Talk about the specifics of what, how that time at Alderson brought us impacted you. What, what was the difference in style of play or the, 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 the ways that, that you guys played there that you felt were the most impactful? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it was the style of play as much. We we played a lot, like um, you know, a lot of people in Eastern Ohio do it. So Charlie H Bob Huggins' father, Charlie Huggins, is an alum of Alderson Broadus, and uh, you know, it's actually how my boss ended up getting the job because um, he was very close to Charlie. Charlie was his high school coach, and you know, ultimately, uh, my boss ended up playing at Alderson Broadus because of that too. But uh, um, you know, so we did a lot of the five out open post motion that you know, like Bob Huggins does at West Virginia or used to do at West Virginia. Um, we played a lot slower than they did um, just because the league was a really fast league. And the way he put it to me is we're trying to be a curveball on a fastball league. Um, and so, you know, and maybe got one every single year. I wasn't going to argue with. We had, we had players. Um, you know, Alderson Broaddus didn't have a whole lot in the way of admission standards. They were really struggling financially at the time I was down there. Um, so we could get 
pretty much whoever we wanted in. And so we got a lot of second chance guys. We had a lot of guys who had been division one players at one place or another that transferred in. We had a lot of junior college guys who couldn't quite meet the um, academic standard. They needed to be eligible at division one. So they, you know, they'd come to us and, uh, we uh, we had some guys, man. We we could really. It didn't matter what we ran. That we were going to score points with those guys and get stops. And uh, you know, I think the thing I learned from him probably the most is two things. One is when you got scholarship. Now we had ten scholarships, but uh, you know, when you got scholarship money, you can't you can't afford to get the wrong guy if you're working on limited scholarship money. You know, so if you're uh, in it's great in the situation I'm in now, but you know, he, he wouldn't settle. If that guy was going to be our 10th or 11th man, he was going to take, you know, level play, whoever comes your way because you got nothing to lose by him. Either they develop or they don't. Um, whereas when you're that level, you got something more to lose by it. And, uh, you know, he was really, really good at making sure he got the right guys in there in terms of the talent level that he needed. Um, you know, academically, we had to walk some of those guys to class every single day. So there were some different challenges there. It wasn't quite the Allegheny type of kid that you could get that came out of high school with a 3.8, uh, you know, 1200 SAT. But, uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, I think managing that side of things was a completely new experience for me. But uh, just seeing that and seeing, you know, how picky you had to be in recruiting and, you know, not settle for anything, I think probably opened my eyes to it a completely different world. Well, and I'm sure it's going to serve you well. We're going to take just a real quick break and then we'll come back and talk about the second half of your journey. And so after one year uh, at Alderson Broadus, which sounded like a very educational and somewhat uh, beneficial year, you got a chance to move on. Um, was it a good thing for you to go back to Division Three when we talk about your next move? Um, just talk about that a little bit when you talk about where you headed after Alderson brought us. Yeah, I, I think ultimately it ended up being a good move, but it, it was definitely a roll of the dice. I, you know, Alderson brought us, and really the, the, re, the biggest reason I left was, you know, Alderson brought us was just in really bad financial shape. And, uh, you know, we got paid monthly down there. Um, and the school was in such bad shape that the people that were a low man on the totem pole um, actually went through, uh, as a matter of fact, I still have the check, um, went through a month where we didn't get paid, but they still cut us checks and had to take the taxes out on what they owed us. So uh, I actually lost money one month while I was down there. I got a check for zero dollars and zero zero cents that I still have uh, in my office right now. But uh, um, so that, that was the biggest thing. You know, I, the coach I was working for, he was at the time, he was the winningest coach by percentage, or had the best win percentage of any coach, active coach in NCAA Division II. Um, and, you know, ultimately winning, you know, sells your resume. So I, you know, that in itself and moving down a level was definitely a gamble, but, you know, I was going to a place, one that was in a location that was great for me personally. It was close, you know, close to where I grew up. And, um, you know, I, I knew coach to really well. And, uh, you know, obviously knew the conference very well. I haven't grown up in Worcester and played and coached at Allegheny. So I think all those things were just a good convergence of things at the time. And the job paid well enough for me to live off of and everything. And I wasn't having to worry about, you know, some of the things I was having to worry about at, uh, at uh, Alderson Broadus. So I, you know, it wasn't a tough decision, but it was definitely a roll of dice. And I remember when I was interviewing for the job, the athletic director at uh, Ohio Wesleyan was like, why do you want to come here? And, uh, you know, cause they'd been very average the year before I got there and, uh, you know, had a couple of down years before that even. And, um, you know, I, I just told him, I was like, listen, I, you know, Coach DeWitt had done a great job. I thought it was ready for a head coaching job and Coach DeWitt had done a great job moving guys on to head coaching jobs. And, uh, you know, I explained all the things I explained earlier and, um, they're like, all right, well, hey, we'd love to have you. So it wasn't uh, – <laughs> the, only, the only thing that was tough is they didn't actually – they actually all went on vacation right after they interviewed me, and I didn't know whether or not I got it. Uh, go to find out that there was only one other guy who interviewed for it. He was like 24 years old. So, um, 
you know, lucky for me, I, I got it. But I was sitting there on pens and needles wondering if I was even going to have a job the next year because I didn't know what kind of uh, state Al Alderson Brados was in. So, um, like I said, it ended up being a great move for me. But uh, it definitely was a roll of the dice at the time. And things go very well for you at Ohio Wesleyan. I know that you guys had a lot of success while you were there. And obviously, if you have success, it's because you've got really good players. And you guys certainly didn't yeah. lack. You guys certainly didn't lack for talent. Yeah, yeah, I, I came in there just the right time. It's funny because all those guys, they had a really good class of juniors when I got there, and all those guys had been freshmen when I was at Allegheny and uh, actually knocked us off in the conference tournament. They upset us. We were the two or three seed, and they were the seven seed and ended up beating us in the conference tournament. And I always made the joke, that, well, you can't beat them, you might as well join them. But, uh, yeah, they, they were all coming up at just the right time. And, and the other thing that really happened for me, a lot of my responsibilities were in recruiting and um, you know, some of that when I got there is the financial aid. They'd been down in enrollment for a few years. So the financial aid had really taken a boost. So I was able to recruit uh, like five 1,000 point scorers and two winningest classes in school history when I was there. So um, you, you talk again, you talk about timing being great. You know, I was there with a good group of players that kind of set the tone for all those guys who came after them. And I was able to recruit a bunch of really good players that came after there and kind of built a reputation for myself, I think, too. So uh, it's, it's just a perfect storm of things at the right time. So Obviously, the success there is helpful to everybody. It's helpful to the, the the school. It's helpful to the program. But it's got to help a guy like you looking to move on, and you were able to make a move from an assistance position to become a head coach. What year did you finally make that move? Uh, that was 2013. I did, I'd had some interviews at actually each of my previous spots um, for head coaching jobs, but never really got any bites on anything. Um, when I – I put in for two jobs, actually. I put in for Thomas Moore and uh, Thomas Moore College down uh, just outside of Cincinnati there and uh, IU South Bend. And I always kind of thought, you know, working at a state school at an NAI, uh, at the NAI level would be a big advantage for a whole lot of reasons, uh, you know, especially, you know, in terms of financial aid. But uh, I, I had no idea I had any connections to IU South Bend. I just kind of blindly put into it because it sounded like it would be a decent job. And um, I come to find out that the women's coach at IU South Bend is now our athletic director and women's coach, but he's just our women's coach at the time who was heading up the committee of that. His father was one of our biggest uh, boosters at Ohio Wesleyan. And so we're coming off of two very good years at the time. And I put in for this job blindly. I ended up getting, you know, getting the interview and then, you know, later get the job. But I find out after the fact that uh, after they invite me up there from an interview from our athletic director, that. Um, the guy's name was Dale Bruce and our head coach, our head women's coach here, uh, his name is Steve Bruce. Um, his son, you know, Dale Bruce's son was Steve Bruce. And, uh, you know, he had called up there on my behalf without me even knowing. And I've never actually met Dale Bruce other than a phone call and, um, said, Hey, we got this guy who's done a lot of good things for our school. You know, um, you gotta give him a look. And so I, you know, ended up getting the interview that way and, um, obviously did well enough to get offered. And I, the way that the Indian university system works, you get, um, you get, you have to wait a month from when you post a hire. And they, you know, so they actually offered me the job before I even got home from the interview. Um, and, and, you know, at the time I had, I had a lot of family that lives in the Cincinnati area. I was thinking oh, Thomas Moore might be a better fit for me. And, you know, I got a phone interview there and never got past that. But, uh, you know, about two days later, um, they actually announced that they hired a guy named Cooper. And I'm thinking, wait, hold on a second. They're going to offer me. First of all, they've never called me up. And second of all, they, uh, you know, they, I don't think they offered me the job, but, uh, you know, I'm finding out on the internet, uh, <laughs> things got really confusing here for a while, but it, you know, worked out well for both parties. I think. So you become a head coach and you, we've, we've gone through your journey. You've experienced a lot of different approaches to the game in terms of coaching style, maybe philosophy, style of play. How do you, what, what, what is IU South Bend basketball? 
it's, it's an ever-changing thing, man. No, we, uh, you know, I, I think what, what we've become is we've become a group of, you know, we, we've become a group of guys that overachieve, you know, that we get the most out of what we have. And you know, we try, we're limited in the resources we have, but we try to make the most of what we have. We try to sell that to our guys. Like, hey, we, we've tried to find those guys that are overlooked in high school that, you know, maybe should have gotten an opportunity but didn't for whatever reason and, uh, you know, try to get the most out of that. I, I think you know, I was really complimented this year when uh, I think one of the biggest compliments we got this year when we made the national tournament uh, in the NAI for the first time was, you know, you guys have every year you guys have one of the toughest teams to play against. And I, I, I really took that to heart. You know, I think uh, just that, you know, the way he put it is you guys compete for every single second you're on the floor. And I thought that was probably the best compliment anyone has ever given me since we've been here. Um, in our program since I've been here. So, um, you know, we've changed how we've played over the years and we started, you know, we started out playing some dribble drive stuff because of who we had at the time. The next year we kind of changed to a pro style offense and again, started slinging threes before everybody really started to hit 10 a game or something like that, which again, at the time seemed like a ton. Um, now it seems like everybody and their brother does that. But, um, and then, you know, once people kind of started doing that, we, we changed to the next thing where we're playing a lot of four guard stuff and, uh, some kind of mesh between some Princeton style stuff and some, you know, ball screen stuff that everybody and their brother runs now. And uh, it, it's been good for us. And defensively, we've kind of stayed true to who we are. We've been a, kind of a pack mind man to man team and, uh, you know, kind of do the same things every year on that end of the floor. And someday I'm going to play zone, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. I, I keep saying it's going to happen. But, um, but that's, that's kind of who we've been. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a great learning experience for me. It's, it's kind of one of those places where, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, they, they don't really care whether we win or lose here. Um, but we have the resources to win. And, uh, you know, we, we had a really good team my third year here that played for the conference championship for the first time in school history. And uh, we ended up losing to a really uh, better team. Um, and I got a nice pat on the back at the end of that year. And then we had some stuff off the court that happened that was, uh, you know, that was really bad. And, um, but we, um, you know, the school was real supportive of how we were doing things. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about the fact that, you know, some school or some places when they get in that situation, they need to, um, you know, recruit a whole new team the next year and get it right. Whereas they, you know, they let me build the program back up rather than saying, okay, if you're going to take a couple of bad years in a row, that's okay. As long as you're doing it the way you've been doing it. And, uh, ultimately that, you know, that patience, cause we, we ended up finishing last about three years ago. Um, we ended up finishing last place in the conference, you know, because we were going to start it and keep getting the same type of players that we were doing and uh, that we were getting. And, uh, building it one year at a time. And, uh, you know, ultimately that led to the year we had this year where we ended up winning our conference tournament. Well, I, I want to talk to you about that winning the conference tournament a little bit later on in, in the podcast, but I, I would like to ask um, from the standpoint of, of kind of a evolving offensive style of play. Um, do, do you feel, is that something that you are recruiting to a style of play or you are, you're going to mold year to year, your style of play to the guys that you're able to bring in? Uh, it's a little bit of both. What what we've gone to is, you know, I, my second or after my first year here, um, a buddy of mine named Nevada Smith was the head coach for the uh, Houston Rockets G League team or D League, I guess at the time, and they were the ones that were slinging up threes everywhere. And I was like, I got to see this. You know, they were scoring 120 points a game, and nobody in the NBA was doing that. Even the Houston Rockets were doing it yet. Um, I, I'm a math major, you know, by trade, so I, I've always been kind of an analytics guy at heart, and uh, you know, never believed in the mid range and all that stuff. And they were taking that to an extreme. And so I was like, so I spent a week with them just kind of watching how they did things and really liked it. We kind of slowly worked it into our program. So um, our X's and O's, you know, if you're watching the NBA, it's, it's not like what Houston does now, but 
um, are, are very similar to what the Denver Nuggets do or the uh, Milwaukee Bucks or even the Boston Celtics now do, you know, with a lot of five out. But, you know, the thing I like about it is you can fit, to answer your question, is you can fit any kind of player into that. The guys just have to be very good at understanding what their strengths are and what the strengths of their teammates are. Um, so it's not so much that the X's and O's of it have changed over the years. It's the, the players that we've been able to get have changed. And, and you know, when in 2016 to 2000, or from 2015 to 2017, we had a ton of shooters. So we shot threes all over the place. And I think we finished second, eighth, and second in the country and uh, three-pointers made during that time. Um, you know, I, I, I liked that. I certainly like you know, making all those shots. But, you know, I found that there's some weaknesses. So we started recruiting. The guys we started to recruit um, were guys that played point guard for their high school, whether by necessity or because they were point guards. So we have a five-man right now who's our, one of our best playmakers who can really go off the bounce. And you know, I think he led us in assists when he was a freshman. We, we've gotten a lot more versatile, I think, that way and haven't had to change the X's and O's. But if you watch this play, it looks completely different because of who's in there. I think that's that's extremely interesting. So I have what may be a difficult question. I don't know. But what would your response be to a maybe a more – conservative approach or I say old school I don't know if that's correct but there are there are those guys who would make the argument that if everybody goes to five out and shoot a ton of threes and keep the floor spread if that's the way everybody plays then the only guys that can win are the ones with the best players yeah well and that's and that's kind of why we changed who we are in terms of how we recruit is is because you know when we first started doing it it was original and we were the only team in our league doing it and you know we uh we led the league at my the first year we started doing it was the 14-15 season. We led the league. I think we had about 10, 10.2 threes per game. That led to the conference by about three threes per game. This past year, that would have finished like seventh out of 15 teams in our league. So um, it just wasn't going to be that way. And then once Golden State and Cleveland and those teams started having all the success they had doing it, you know, teams were catching up and we had to look for what was next. And I, I didn't want to make big changes, but I thought, all right, well, you know, the next thing, if you really were watching how basketball is evolving, you watch teams like the Bucks or what wasn't the teams that were spit, you know, flinging threes all over the place. It was the skill sets of the guys that were doing it. So, you know, we, we tried to find the most skilled guys we could find and the most athletic guys we could find for the money that we have available to us in our scholarship fund. And, um, you know, for us, I think that was the next thing. Um, and, and that's what we're always looking to is, all right, what's the next thing? Cause eventually people are going to catch up to that too. I think, I think if you're really watching, so we're just trying to make, sure we stay ahead of the curve and I, I don't know what it is and that's something we talk about as, as coaches all the time is okay this is working for us right now and I think we're 15th in the country in scoring offense per game and uh, I think we're 19th in all of college basketball this year in offensive efficiency and, and that's great for right now but is that going to hold you know down the line as teams continue to evolve you know so we're always kind of trying to figure out what the next thing is and, um, it's funny because I think things just come back around like I said I'm I mentioned, you know, we run a lot of uh, Princeton-y actions. Our spacing is a little bit different than a traditional Princeton. But um, but a lot of the reason we went to that is because we could fit all those different types of skill sets into that. And you know, the guys could dribble, pass, and shoot and all that stuff. And that's stuff that people haven't been successful with for a whole lot, for a long time. But as you kind of watch what's going on in the NBA with teams that are looking for that next thing, that's kind of the direction they've gone. And you to watch the really efficient teams in college basketball at every level. Um, that's the way they've got, you know, watch teams like Richmond and not the Kentucky of the world that can get the best players, but, you know, how are those mid-majors that are competing with everybody? What are they doing? And you watch the Gonzagas and the Richmonds and the, um, at the Division Two level, you know, Alabama Huntsville was very, very good there doing that for a while. Uh, Division Three level, I mentioned Nebraska Wesleyan there, um, Roger, University of Rochester in New York, uh, you know, all those teams that were competing, doing different things in leagues where they probably shouldn't be. And I think that was really what 
you know, we saw was the next thing. So that's what we tried to do. I've I've been sold on it for a long time. I've been fascinated for most of my career about the number of different levels and the consistency with which teams will adapt to and kind of own some of that chin action and the chin look out of the Princeton stuff. And, and even, you know, you watch games this year. I mean, Butler, Butler has an entire package of of half court sets that they're really set plays. They're really designed for specific scoring opportunities, but everything comes off of some action that starts in or ends in, in, in the Princeton style stuff or the chin look. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I'm curious to know what you think about the idea that, I mean, I hear some conversations that there's actually a little bit of similarity in terms of spacing and, and things between what happens in the chin look and what what really was dribble drive, you know, early on. Yeah, well, and realistically, the dribble drive is a component of um, is a component of the traditional Princeton too. You know, it's all the reads out that come off the bounce. It's just that they, you know, that's where they start at. Uh, yeah, we we don't do a whole lot of chin. We have kind of the back action to chin, but uh, you know. Um, you know, really, it's the it's the five out with the guy in the middle, and, and you know what you're looking for is you know where's the five spaced and where's the ball spaced, and uh, you know how's everybody else reacting to that. So that kind of tells you what you're going to do. Um, and, and I like that because one thing I found is you know when I was growing up, everybody played kind of you know in our part of the country anyway, everybody played kind of you know off ball motion where you pass and screen away and read the you know read the defense you know between the screener and the cutter and you know react accordingly and and that's the way we all knew now everybody you know kind of came up with what you're talking about dribble drive stuff and or you know a lot of ball screen continuities you're seeing now that are pretty good and uh you know what we found is those guys who play that way only are used to reading one or two things that are completely different than what it was so we're trying to rather than sit there trying to reteach all that stuff we tried to figure out how can we work that into what we already do and so uh, the things I like about it are one, the space, you know, we've changed the spacing a little bit. We're out of the traditional two, three high that, you know, that starts in, we've kind of stretched those guys that are at the wings down to the corners and, sure. um, you know, and some of that, but, um, you know, just to, again, to provide more room to drive. Um, and, and I like the thing I liked about a traditional Princeton and we don't run a traditional, like I said, ours is kind of a hybrid between that some ball screen action. But, um, the thing I like about a traditional Princeton is those guys always knew what the next thing was. There was never any confusion. They, you know, they knew when the off when defense broke down, they knew how they were supposed to react to that. When the defense caught up, they knew how they were supposed to react to that. That's the thing I like about it us. And I, you know, it's one of those things where we don't call any sets. We have one. I should say we have we have one set play. We run. Everything we call is just how we're going to start the offense. So after a made shot, we're getting into you know you mentioned chin. We don't have a chin, but you know we're getting into our jungle series or we're getting into our point series or you know whatever it happens to be, and that leads us into the next thing. And that's the thing I really liked about it is those guys didn't have to think; they just got better. We just had to work on, you know, how to react and recognize, you know, where everybody was on the floor. And, you know, we didn't have to worry about calling plays. We just had to call it out in the right place and understand who had the matchup. Well, I think it sounds fascinating, and I think it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun to play in that system. Let's talk a little bit. When I told you we'd try to do this in about an hour, so we're probably getting close to about 10 minutes left. But talk a little bit about the installing and the teaching of those things. Are you Are you a guy who – goes from part to whole or are you a guy that likes to teach and play a lot of five on five and, and, and learn on the fly? I, I'm hearing a lot of discussion right now about there being real benefit in terms of the learning science to doing most everything five on five and, and, it, and it actually increases learning and understanding. But how, what's your take on how you install your stuff? Yeah, so we, we do it. We'll call it whole part whole for lack of a better term, but we, uh, we do in the NAI, we've got practice time years and we can practice yeah. all year long almost if we wanted to so it's, it's a little bit easier maybe at this level than it is at others but 
Um, but we start by installing it in five on O and just showing, you know, we'll, we'll start with, you know, one component makes sure we do that for two, two straight days and that's all we do. Um, you know, we'll do that five on O we'll do a breakdown of it in some way, shape or form. Um, just the skill sets that we are the reads that we have to do with the dummy D and then we'll do small sided games and build it up to five on five. Um, and then we do that with, we have six different parts of our offense that they have to know. And we do that with each part over a two day stretch. Um, and then we, basically at the end of the day, end of that day, when we're putting that in, we'll just play, you know, we'll just play and they have to start in that stretch and, you know, add it in. Um, when we get to the season, we're, we're spending a lot more time, you know, if they don't know by the time we start our first game, we're doing something wrong. Cause it is actually pretty simple stuff. It's not like it's overly complicated. And that's one of the things I like about it. It's easy to learn. We get to the season and we're focused more on, all right, the team we're getting ready to play. So let's say we're getting ready to play Ohio Northern University and they, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but, you know, Joe Campoli style, they're going to hard hedge everything and uh, go over the top and, you know, skinny up and do all that and, you know, play the ball screen with two guys and, you know, all that stuff. All right. So we're going to work on how we're going to attack that ball screen in those situations. We're going to scouting report. We're going to look at a lot of who the guys we can attack because everybody's got a bum you can go after, you know, and if you're on the playground and there's that, you know, fat slow kid that's probably the guy you're going to try to go after if you're playing against him but that's that's kind of the same thing we try to do offensively so all right how are we going to get that guy into action based on who he's guarding and we'll have a pretty good idea who he's guarding when we do our scout so we'll try to create that situation with a small sided game where the other team you know the defense is guarding us with you know whatever coverage we're going to see and here's the match where the matchup's going to be and sometimes that coverage is you know involves three guys sometimes our coverage involves four guys sometimes it just involves two depending how they play the ball screens and um, you know we're going to get into that and so that our guys know what the read is and then we're, we're going to play five on five and we're just going to start it out in the you know two or three entries that we're going to use you know that game based on those things and um and we play five on five and we really do we you know we go you know like everybody does score stop score you know play for a certain amount of time or whatever it happens to be you know whatever else we're trying to work on at the time too um but yeah we, i'd say probably 50% of our practice is five on five of the live stuff that we do. I, I, the more I hear and the more I listen to people that are, are trying to stay ahead of things, it sounds like that's the route a lot of people are going. And yeah, that would be a difficult adjustment for a guy like me because we just, we were whole part whole, but we were whole for very little time. We were part a lot. And then, <laughs> and I mean, that's how we did things. And so I, I find it interesting that it just sounds like the science says that guys are going to learn better and more consistently. And they're going to, got to own what they learn a little more if they if they play five on five and the truth of the matter is coop i mean you play the game five on five you probably ought to practice it about half the time that way at least yeah i I, i'm a big fan of it and the thing i like about it is you know we can you know i can let's say we're working on our offense i can sit there and say say to our assistant coach all right we're gonna play against our defense i want you to make sure you're watching that the whole time so you know we can work on a lot of different things and we can create i think in basketball or any sport really you know it's, it's just a series of situations. And so it, in five on five, it's just easier to create the situations that you're going to see, you know, than it is to do a breakdown. And that there's a lot of merit to doing breakdown drills too. I am not trying to take away from that by any means, but I think it's easier to create the situations you're going to see in a game and get better at those as the year goes on. If you're doing it the way it's going to happen, uh, you know, and, and you know, there's times you got to slow it down and things like that. Or like I said, we do a lot of small sided games to build up to that. But um, even those, but, I think the biggest thing is we just want to do them live. You know, I think the more you're doing stuff going through the motions, one, the guys get bored, but two, um, you know, at, at some point they've mastered the skill, you know, they've got to use the skill. And I think that's where the five on five comes in because, you know, defense isn't the one on one thing. It's not a two on two thing. It's, it's a five on five thing. You know, there's four, you know, there's five guys that are 
all defending the ball in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, our offense, you know, there's five guys that are having to read off the ball. You know, that's uh, you know, if you can't do that, it's, it's tough to play. Well, I said we were going to get to this. So in about four or five minutes, maybe a little bit less than that, if you if you can sum it up, you you said for the first time in history, your school qualified for the NCAA, or the NAIA national tournament this year. Uh, you were supposed to be getting ready to play, and you couldn't because of all the, the, the things that have happened with the COVID-19 outbreak. Talk to me and our listeners a little bit about what that was like going through that. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever been a part of. I, I don't know. The NAIA plays their national tournament all in one place. Um, and it's, it's a really cool experience to be a part of that. And games were going already. I think there were, I don't know, six, seven games in, whatever it was. Uh, actually, maybe more than that, about nine or ten. But uh, we were going to be the second to last game of the first round. And um, the place we're playing at, uh, you know, has a bunch of courts outside or in a different part of the building where you could, you know, um, go through your shoot rounds and stuff like that. So we're going through our free game. And uh, all of a sudden, get the call during that thing. And uh, there's a couple other teams that were getting ready for their game too. And uh, at the same time, and all of a sudden, everybody just stopped. And, and there's no, obviously, there's no experience or playbook that you can fall back on to, to, you know, approach that with your guys. All of a sudden, your season goes from, all right, you're excited, you're competing for a national championship and everything else, to, okay, your year's over and you haven't even, you know, rolled out the balls there yet. So, um, you know, for us, we just tried to reflect on you. Know, we were pretty fortunate to win our conference championship game. So we just tried to reflect, you know, we went back to the hotel, we met as a team and, uh, you know, watched our conference championship game as a team just to enjoy it. Um, and then, you know, talked a little bit about our year and reflected that way, had a nice dinner and then, you know, just drove home and that was it. And, you know, we haven't been back together since then because, you know, everybody shut down schools and went to online teaching. So it's, it's, it, there hasn't been a whole lot of closure. I don't know that, uh, I don't know that there's a right way to do it, but I feel like it ended about as well as we could under the circumstances. I, I can't even imagine trying to get through that. And I, and I know that if it got handled by you, it got handled well, but I just can't even imagine uh, what that was like. It had to be an entirely bizarre thing to go through. And most disappointing, you didn't get to continue the season that you were having. And, and who knows when we'll start back up and what it'll look like when we do. But I, I didn't tell yeah. you this at the beginning of the podcast. I'm going to save it here for right here at the end. And I, it's a new rule since it's a new podcast that if you're a guest on here, you got to send me a shirt <laughs> from your school. So I, I, before no. this is all over, I'm going to have a lot of t-shirts, I'm hoping. No. So we, we can, I'll, I'll warn you. I'll warn you. We've got that obnoxious IU logo on everything that we do, though. Man. You got you know, as an Ohio State fan growing up, it killed me every time I put one of those things on. But uh, understood. If you wear it for seven years, I, I guess my point is you'll get used to it. Understood, but still, you got to understand if it's free, it's for me. Isn't just a, it isn't just a <laughs> saying, buddy. It's <laughs> it, it works out well. So listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this, and I, I hope that this is something we'll do maybe repeatedly down the road if we can keep this podcast rolling. Uh, I'd love to catch up with you and continue. To, I could get into the X's and O's talk, and we will. Uh, maybe on a future podcast, but this was a blast, and I, I just really enjoy it. I want to tell you thanks. I uh, appreciate you having me. This was fun. Well, I, like I said, hope we do it again, and uh, if and when you get a chance to get back on campus and get back with your guys and start those unlimited NAIA practices, make sure you let me know. <laughs> We'd be going right now if we could. Make sure you let me know. I'll come visit. Uh, please do. All right. appreciate you, Scott. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Hey, I want to say thanks for listening today to Talking Hoops with me, Coach John Cook. I hope you enjoyed our visit with Scott Cooper, the head basketball coach at Indiana University South Bend, and I hope you'll come back again so we can talk hoops real soon.